0: It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Trust in institutions like governments, media, and charities has hit an all-time low, but trust is growing in other ways. People rent their homes to total strangers, exchange digital currencies, and trust bots. Tech expert Rachel Botsman says technology is redefining who we trust, and this shift in trust has fundamental consequences for everyone.
1: We are living in an age of trust on speed, and efficiency and speed are the enemy of trust. Trust actually needs some friction.
0: Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Trust is fundamental in nearly every action, relationship, and transaction in society. In the digital era, trust flows through systems and networks controlled by humans, programs, or bots. How do we know who to trust? And how can we maintain the level of trust society needs to survive and thrive? Rachel Botsman lectures at Oxford and writes for the Harvard Business Review. She wrote the book, Who Can You Trust?, about the mechanics of how trust is built, managed, lost, and repaired in the digital age. Here's Botsman.
1: Thank you, it's um, lovely to be here this morning. Um, I'm gonna talk about trust in the digital age, and I'd like to put out an idea there. I'd like to try and change a narrative that really has taken hold in society that trust is in a state of crisis and while this narrative is true that trust in major institutions government banks media charities even religious organizations is at all-time low i think something more profound and fascinating is happening that there's actually plenty of trust out there it's just flowing in a different direction that we are entering a massive trust shift from institutions to individuals And that we're starting to see that the consequences of this shift are both good and bad. So that's the topic we're going to explore today. I'd like to just start by getting a little bit of a feel for you. So this is a very simple, quick exercise. Um, I'd like you to raise your hand if you have ever been a guest on Airbnb. So most of the audience. And do we have any Airbnb hosts? Okay, a few less because it actually requires more trust to be a host than a guest. Um, forget Tinder. Um, has anyone used Tindog? This, is, this isn't made up. It's a real app, so it's, it's dating for your dog. I mean, it's like you can find your dog's perfect mate. I'm not making this up. It really does exist. Has anyone used Tindog? Okay, no, but um, that's all right. Um, and has anyone been on the dark web. You don't need to tell me what you've bought, like just has anyone been on the dark web? So a couple of people. Um, So I'm going to explain how these ideas are connected by this theme of technology and trust. Just before we dive in, um, trust is a very funny thing to study. Um, I flew in from Sydney, and one of the great things about flying from Sydney is you can watch seven feature movies. And you still have time left, right? You can still do like a box set. Now, one of the movies I watched on the way over uh, was The Princess Bride. I love that movie, and I know if you remember that there's um, the main character, the Sicilian, every time something happens that he can't quite believe, he says, inconceivable. And right towards the end of the movie, the swordsman says, "Uh, you keep using this word, but it does not mean what you think it means. And this is how I feel when I read and hear a lot of people talking about trust. Now, the way many people think and talk about trust is they talk about it as an attribute or a value. Other people think of it like an asset, a strategic asset that can be managed by governance and uh, communications and marketing. And it's not that trust isn't these things. Trust can be these things. But this isn't the way trust works in the world. In order for trust to become an asset, in order for trust to be an attribute, it works as a continual process. And one of the really interesting things you hear about trust, and you hear this with many organizations, particularly in a crisis, is they say, we're going to rebuild trust, which is a very strange thing to say, because trust is something that is given to you. You can't decide to rebuild trust. You can decide to be more trustworthy. Other people decide whether to give their trust. So this is kind of the frame and the way I think about trust. I think about trust as a continual process of something that is given to you. And I started thinking about this from a really, really young age, because the issue is that we can often give our trust to the wrong people and the wrong places. Now, I started thinking about this around the age of five. Now, I'm sure at the age of five, I didn't say I want to study trust, but something very interesting happened in my life that was a real demonstration of how We can make very bad trust decisions. So my mum decided she wanted to go back to work, and she needed to hire someone to look after my brother and I. Now, anyone who watches Downton Abbey will know that there's this magazine in England called The Lady. And The Lady is a very strange magazine, because it's where high society, like higher nannies and gardeners and butlers, and I don't know why, but my mom decided that she was going to place an advert in the lady. And I'll never forget the woman who came into our house. She was a woman called Doreen, and she had this big mop of curly hair, and she wore these big glasses. She had this very, very thick Scottish accent, and the thing I remember so distinctly is that she was wearing a navy uniform with a bonnet because she had told my parents the reason why she wanted to be a nanny was that she loved helping people and that she was a member of the Salvation Army. Now all these things, the Scottish accent, the glasses, the Salvation Army uniform, they are what we call trust signals and trust signals are very important. They are clues or symbols that we knowingly or unknowingly use to decide whether someone is trustworthy or not. Now, the unfortunate thing is that some signals are louder than others. And very untrustworthy people often know how to manipulate these signals. Now, Doreen lived with us for almost 10 months. And I remember her being very cheerful and reliable and fun to be around. And there wasn't anything really strange about her. And then one weekend, she disappeared. And my Sunday night, my parents were quite worried. So they went round to our neighbor's house, and his name was Mr. Luxembourg, because our nanny was friendly with their nanny, and said, you wouldn't know where Dorian is by any chance. And he said, well, it's really funny that you've come round, because I've just found out that your nanny and our nanny are running the largest drugs ring in North London. Now... <laughs> <laughs> my parents at this point are hoping she doesn't come home, right? And they, they search her room and there's all kinds of things you do not want to find in a house when you're looking after young children. But what happened next is really so unbelievable that you have to trust me, it's true, because it is true. So um, <laughs> three days later, there's a knock at the door and the police come round and they arrest my dad. And my dad's like, why are you arresting me? And they said, well... Doreen has robbed a bank, she's been involved in an armed robbery and she's used your silver family Volvo estate as the getaway car, right, so, now, I love this story, I love this story because I like to remind my parents that they left me in the care of a drug dealing armed bank robber for more than 10 months of my life, um, but the reason why I love this story is that it's a perfect illustration of why trust, we have to make bad trust decisions, My parents, they are actually smart people. They they are usually quite rational people, but they thought they had enough information to make a decision about Doreen, when in reality they faced something called a trust gap. And this is so important when it comes to trust, that the illusion of information can be far more dangerous than ignorance. As one of my favorite trust theorists puts it, Uh, His name is Diego Gambetta. He says, trust has two enemies, not one, bad character and poor information. So one of the things I started to become really fascinated with in my research was how technology could help solve these problems. Could technology make us smarter about whom we trust? Or is technology speeding up trust and encouraging us to give our trust to the wrong people and the wrong places. Now, I think this is a really important, profound question that is having implications and consequences in all different areas of our lives. And one of the reasons why I think this is an important question is because there's this narrative, this almost moral crisis that trust is being eroded. And it's really easy to see why. Because we open the papers every single day, and there is some kind of major incident of trust baking down, of our faith and confidence in institutions and big systems being eroded. Now, while this narrative is true, there are lots of issues with it. Now, let me point out one. And we're going to do a quick exercise. It has an important point. So it's called a trust barometer. And the way it works is you each get to boo, right? And you can only boo once. And you have to pick the person on this slide that you think is the least trustworthy. So you can pick Harvey Weinstein, you can pick President Trump, or you can pick Sophia the robot, okay? So if you think Harvey Weinstein is the least trustworthy person on this slide, boo now. If you think President Trump is the least trustworthy person on this slide, boo now. Okay. If you think um, Sophia the robot, and for those of you who don't know, it's really fascinating. Sophia is actually the first robot to receive citizenship in all places, Saudi Arabia. Um, So if you think she is the least trustworthy person on this slide, boo now. Okay, so we should be a little bit worried that the president is less trustworthy than a robot, but it's going to be okay. So we're going to do this exercise in reverse. Um, You now can clap. I want you to clap for the company that you trust the most. You can only clap once, right? So if you think that you trust Google the most, clap now. If you trust Facebook the most, clap now. (laughs) Okay. You don't have to quit doing So, I was at a conference uh, like a, f- a couple of months ago, and I um, asked this question, and one person started like, I mean, s- clapping so enthusiastically right in front of me. And it turned out to be Randy Zuckerberg, Mark's <laughs> sister. And I thought, of all the chances in the world. But anyway, OK, if you think Amazon, you trust Amazon the most, clap now. OK, so I think Amazon is the clear winner there. Now, why did I make you do this exercise? because it's a rubbish exercise. It's, it's a terrible exercise, and I did it for that reason. Because this is how we talk about trust. Do you trust this person? Do you trust this institution? Do you trust this company? And we forget this really basic point, to do what? What am I asking you, when I say, do you trust them, to do what? Because trust is so contextual and subjective. So if I'd asked that question differently, if I said, do you trust, That President Trump is going to tweet something ridiculous at 3 a.m., you would have given me a very different answer. Amazon is a really interesting one. I think you're clapping because when you place an order with Amazon, you trust that it's going to arrive within the next hour or the next day. If I'd asked you, do you trust that Amazon pays fair taxes or treats their employees well, we would have got a really different response. So this is really important when we keep hearing about trust in crisis or we don't trust this person, or we don't trust that organization, we must keep in mind that trust is highly subjective and it's highly contextual. But I think there's something more structural going on, that when you look at a lot of patterns of disruption, a lot of pain, frustration, anger, confusion in the world, it can actually be explained through this lens. That... Think of trust slightly differently. Think of trust like energy. And energy, as many of you will know, can never be destroyed. Energy is always changing form. And this is what's happening to trust right now. And the reason why this is so profound is if you look back in human history, this has only happened twice before. So for a long period of history, trust was what we call local. And this is really easy to understand. It's when we lived in small villages and communities and trust was largely face-to-face based on families, friends, neighbors, and reputation. When we went through urbanization, um, international trade, this type of trust wasn't scalable. So we invented what we call institutional trust. We invented corporate brands. We invented intermediaries. We invented risk mechanisms. And trust stopped flowing directly between people and started to flow between institutions. Now I'm not saying that these two types of trust are going away and that they are not important for society, they are. But there's this third type of trust emerging that we call distributed trust. And it's a trust in sort of going like full circle, is flowing again between individuals through networks and systems and platforms. But it can operate in ways and on a scale that we've never seen before and we're already seeing signs this is like day one of this transition but we're already seeing signs of how it's changing our behaviors probably one of the largest is in the way that we share information through social media that yes we go to places like the new york times and places like cnn but trust Flows through social media platforms. That's largely the way we share information and consume our news. We've seen how it can open up new marketplaces through things like Alibaba and eBay. We've seen how it can change the way resources and supply and demand can find one another through things like Uber. We've seen how it can allow total strangers to trust one another through the internet, whether it be things like through dating apps, Airbnb, cryptocurrencies, or the dark web. The challenge is that this type of trust plays by very different rules. And so many institutions and so many companies are designed around the principles of institutional trust. This idea that trust can be managed in this very top-down, hierarchical, opaque, centralized way, that it's bureaucratic and it's centralized. And when you look at this new world of distributed trust, it plays by very different rules. And we have two things going on. We have institutions caught out because they still think they're living in this institutional age. And then we have distributed platforms, things like Facebook, that have like a distributed power model but still operate with an institutional mindset. There's an amazing new book out, and I think Jeremy's actually speaking on Friday. It's called New Power. I highly recommend going to his session. And I mean, think was funny. So he talks about distributed power, and I think about distributed trust. And I've been thinking a lot about Minecraft as a metaphor for this new world. And in his opening chapter, he talks about Minecraft and Tetris. So who played Tetris you know, on a Game Boy? A few people. So for those of you who don't know, it was this massive Nintendo game uh, craze. And what happened was the game was so simple. These blocks would fall from the sky. And then as a play, you had to organize them in a row. And what was so interesting about this game is the blocks would speed up and you could never beat the system. And the blocks came down in a top-down fashion. And your role as a player was extremely limited. You could never beat the system. This was the Tetris world. My son is six, and he is obsessed with Minecraft. He has given up all TV. To, he has one hour in the evening, right? And he, all he wants to do is play Minecraft. And I was watching, do, do any of your kids play Minecraft? Or Grant? It should be called, like, Minecraft. This game is so addictive. And he has a younger sister, and it's, like, really interesting listening to their conversations, because it's like, did you capture the bunnies? Did you tame the wolves? Like, this game is, like, so confusing. So I said to him, Jack, I don't understand how this game is played. I don't understand the rules of the game. He's six years old. And you know what he said to me? It's my world and my rules. (laughs) Now, in that sentence, it says everything. I grew up in a Tetris world. He's growing up in a Minecraft world. And so many issues in the world is because these Tetris organizations are dealing with these Minecraft rules and these Minecraft mindsets. So that's what I want to explore today, is a little bit of this tension. And I want to explore it on three different levels. I want to explore how our trust is playing out in new ideas. I want to explore trust in platforms and then trust in other individuals, whether that be real human beings or bots um, or automated artificial intelligence. So let's take a look at trust in new ideas. and. We're going to do one more exercise just to bring this to life. So I'd like everyone to take out their phones and just unlock them. And just wave them in the air when you've done that. And I want you to swap phones. So just pass your phone to the person on your left and the person on your right. Okay. now I'm going to give you 30 seconds. And I'm giving you permission that you can do whatever you want for 30 seconds with that person's phone. All right, go. Okay, so now you need to give the phones back. Why did I make you do this? So I made you do this for a couple of reasons, right? So what's really interesting about this exercise, and one of the reasons why I love studying human behavior is because we love to believe that we're really complicated and different, but we're actually very predictable. And watching you, you fall into sort of three distinct groups. The first group, I say this with all due respect, you either pretend you don't have a phone, which I do not believe, right? (laughs) Or you're too far from another person, or you're just like not gonna play, right? The second group, which is the majority of you, are the ones that are kind of nervously laughing, because this is what we do when we're slightly uncomfortable. And you give the phone, but you're not really playing because you're looking at the other person, and you're like asking them for permission to tap anything on that phone, right? And then there's a third group of you, I won't point to you, and you are the anomalies, the minority. You have a very different relationship to this exercise. You take that phone, your head's down, and you're tweeting, (laughs) like someone was messaging, Instagramming, I don't know what. But you had a very different relationship to that phone. You went straight into that phone. And this, this, this exercise in itself, it illustrates how we all have this thing called a risk propensity. And risk propensity is very important when it comes to trust, that we all have a different propensity to take risks. Now, why is this so critical? Well, when we take a risk to do something new or to do it differently, it's what we call a trust leap. And some of us have a different propensity to take trust leaps. Now, trust leaps are really interesting themselves to study because. We've been leaping as human beings from the beginning of time, right? We're really good. This is how society progresses. This is how innovation happens. So think of a major trust leap that happened in society when people, bless you, switched from um, bartering. So I have a chicken, you have a metal pot, these things have real value, let's exchange. Think of the trust leap when they went from that to trusting that these flimsy printed pieces of paper have money. That was an enormous trust leap. The difference today is that we are being asked to leap faster and higher than ever before. You know, think about the first time you put your credit card details into a website, think about the first time you used an ATM, the first time you used eBay, the first time we all get in a self driving car and let a machine take over the will. These are all trust leaps, and they don't get adopted without trust. You can think of trust literally like this conduit for these new ideas to travel. And what technology is doing is accelerating this process. Now, trust leaps are really helpful when it comes to visualizing how trust works. So trust, I don't know about you, but it's just like really abstract thing. So I find it helpful to visualize it. Now, what's interesting about trust is, yes, it's very contextual and subjective, but it works in the same way. So whenever you're asking someone to trust, you've basically got two states involved. You've got a known state, which is where human beings love to be, like a place of certainty, a known outcome. And then you've got an unknown state. Now, this could be a new boss. It could be a stranger you've just met. It could be a new restaurant you're going to, a new product you're being asked to try. It could be a new system, a new app. It could be anything. The line between these two things is what we call risk. So risk is how we manage uncertainty in our companies and organizations, in our lives. It's how much tolerance we have for that uncertainty and the potential loss. But risk isn't what enables human beings to act. It's it's not what enables human beings to place their faith in someone or something unknown. That remarkable force is trust. And so this is why the easiest way to think of trust is that it's a bridge between the known and the unknown. It's like the social glue that holds society together. So this is why I define trust in a very simple way. I define trust as a confident relationship to the unknown. And when you think of trust through this lens, you start to see why it's this mixture of people's fears and hopes and expectations and desires, why trust requires us to be vulnerable, why it hurts so much, when trust is broken or breached. So think of trust for the next 25 minutes as this bridge between the known and the unknown. And that takes us into this new world of platforms, trust in platforms, all kinds of platforms, not just social media platforms. And what's really interesting about platforms is they too are struggling with this new world of distributed trust. So many of them, if you think about it, you can think of Uber, you can think of Facebook, is that they have this distributed model of users. But when something goes wrong, they revert to this institutional mindset that we can put in these rules or regulations that will fix the problem. And we're seeing this play out. So we saw this play out really recently with the Facebook hearings, the Senate hearings. Now, I don't know about you. I watch these hearings. And it was like, with all due respect, it was kind of entertaining, because it was like a train wreck. It was a train wreck watching these senators be quite deferential to Mark Zuckerberg. So I'm just gonna show you um, three or four of my favorite moments from the hearings that illustrate a really serious problem. So let me show you the clip.
0: User agreement sucks. The purpose of that user agreement is to cover Facebook's rare eating. How do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run out. Mr. Zuckerberg, would you be comfortable sharing with us the name of the hotel you stayed in last night? Um. <laughs> uh,
1: no. <laughs> and so it goes on, right? Now, What was really interesting about these hearings is I thought they were going to have quite a sophisticated conversation around the problem, right? But no one seemed to agree with what the real problem was because they couldn't understand how the system worked, right? They didn't really understand the beast that they were dealing with. I also thought they were going to have a really interesting discussion about social responsibility, the accountability of platforms in this new age of distributed trust. And to really talk about these two sides, of the equation. so what is the role of technology platforms in terms of being proactive? So this is where they largely say they need to focus their efforts, that their responsibility is on reducing the risks of bad things happening, whether that be fake news, trolls, misinformation, whatever it may be. And there was very little conversation about accountability and responsibility around their responsibility when things go wrong. How much of that responsibility is your responsibility at the platforms versus the responsibility of the users? And what struck me when I was listening to these hearings is I don't know how many of you have read this amazing book. You should all read it by Christopher Hayes. It's called Twilight of the Elites. And there's a sentence in there where he says we cannot apply The principles of accountability to the powerless and the principles of forgiveness to the powerful and it's such a good phrase that really summed up the sentiment I think of these hearings now what's interesting is that when people don't really understand the problem or when a system has got so big like when it's a network monopoly like Facebook rather than having these very difficult conversations What do we jump to? We jump to transparency. We think the solution, and we've seen this with banks, that if everything is more transparent, this is going to magically restore trust. This graph is wrong. This isn't the way trust works. More transparency doesn't equal more trust. There's kind of a cap. Now why do I say that, right? Now I'm not saying that transparency is bad. right? There's many good types of transparency. So if you look at, um, there's new startups like Lemonade as an insurance startup or TransferWise is a currency transfer startup. If you look at the way those products and services are designed, inherent in their DNA is transparency. But the intention behind that transparency is very clear. It's to give you an informed choice as a consumer or a user. But we rarely see this type of transparency. When regulators say you need to be more transparent or organizations, particularly in this say we're gonna be more transparent, it's like this layer of transparency, this kind of forced level of disclosure. Now, why do I say that this graph is wrong? Well, think about the definition that we talked about, the definition of trust. Trust is a confident relationship to the unknown. If we need things to be transparent, we've kind of given up on trust. Highly transparent societies, highly transparent, think of personal relationships, friends that you might know where they need to know every single thing about their partner. Organizations where you have mass CCs on emails or like 22 people in a meeting, all in the spirit of transparency. These are low trust organizations. So I think one of the dangerous things that's really taken hold, that's become part of this narrative that trusts in crisis, is that if everything becomes more transparent, as a society, we're going to have more trust. I think this is a terrible end goal. Transparency isn't this moral high ground. It's actually the opposite of building a high-trust society. So if this isn't the end goal, what can we focus on? The solution is so simple. It's being more trustworthy. How do we find and hold people to account so they're more trustworthy? Now, the reason why this is actually a more tangible goal is there is a real science behind what makes another individual trustworthy. And it comes down to these four traits. So when we're deciding whether a partner, a political leader, a journalist, whatever it may be, is trustworthy, We're continually making this assessment. And we're looking at hard traits, so what we call capability traits, which are really made up of um, someone's competence. So does this person have the skills and the knowledge and the experience to do what they say they want to do? Reliability. Now, I find reliability fascinating because reliability is to do with time, So how responsive is this person? But it's also to do with consistency of patterns of behavior. Now I don't know, I've experienced this with team members, right? Like some days they show up and they are absolutely brilliant. And other days it's like, you've got a different human being. Now we all have bad days, but when a human is really inconsistent in their behavior, this is really bad for trust. So these are what we call the hard traits, the capability traits, the how traits. And what's really interesting is I think about the way we often interview, and many of the questions tend to be around these capability and reliability traits, but where someone really shines or where trust is really held is actually on the right-hand side, on character, and this really comes down to two things, benevolence, which is about empathy and how much this person genuinely cares, and then there's integrity. Integrity is like the holy grail. If you think about situations, it can be political situations, romantic situations, all kinds of situations, where trust wobbles is when integrity breaks down. Think of, go back to the Facebook example. Integrity is not just about honesty and fairness. Integrity is about a fundamental question. Do your stated intentions align with mine? Do your intentions align with mine? And when there's a misalignment of intentions or when we fool people inauthentic about our intentions, that is corrosive to trust. Now, these four traits, they're very hard to assess in humans. And as I said, untrustworthy people are very good at manipulating, sending signals that confuse us around these traits. Think of Doreen, the dodgy nanny, right? She was competent and she was reliable. You could even argue that she cared. I'm not sure her intentions were aligned with my parents. Now this is hard in humans. It becomes even harder when we're trying to judge the trustworthiness of machines. So let me end with a story. This is one of my children, one of the reasons why I couldn't come to Aspen. I think she was worthwhile. Um, her name is Grace, Gracie we call her. Um, she's now four. She was three and a half when this happened. And the one thing you should know about Gracie and the reason why I chose this photo is she, she loves fashion. She loves clothes, right? And any of you got kids will know that if you try and interfere with that process of them getting dressed, they move backwards, right? So they put the clothes on and then they put the clothes off and I swear they walk backwards. So we have to allow 20 minutes in the morning for her wardrobe changes and her accessories. So she's wearing two tiaras, not one to go to preschool, right? Now, the important part of this is that I cannot have any say in Gracie's choice of clothes. This is a bad start to the day. And so I tried this experiment with Gracie where I introduced her to Alexa. And I put Alexa down on the kitchen table, and I said, Gracie, I want you to meet Alexa. And she said, this is the first thing she said, she goes, is she like Siri? She's three and a half, right? She understood that Alexa, which I hadn't said anything yet, was a speaker, was also a helpful female assistant. She got that as well, right? So... She said, "Um, what does she do? And I said, well, you can ask Alexa anything you want, Gracie. And that's where I left it. Now, what's really interesting, Gracie's half British, she's half Australian, so that may explain that she started with the weather, right? Like, she asked a lot of questions about the weather. But this is actually something very normal we do with technology. We test it with things that we're familiar with, right? So we test it with things that we know the answer to. So she asked lots of questions about the weather. This didn't surprise me. Then she said... Alexa, can you play music from Sing, which is her favorite movie. So we heard the soundtrack from Sing and then Frozen over and over again. The second day, she comes downstairs, the thing lights up, and she figures she can order things from Alexa. I didn't tell her this. Now, luckily, Gracie loves blueberries, and she ordered a box of blueberries, and she couldn't believe when they arrived right like any of you got young children will know they have no power and control in their life so she can speak to a speaker and these things are going to arrive at her home it was like magic but the really interesting thing happened on day three so she came downstairs and she just says good morning to me and her brother and her dad the first person she said hello to good morning Alexa what should I do today now kind of outsourcing the decision but she then stood in front of Alexa and said what should I wear today now keep in mind I cannot get involved in these decisions it took her three days to outsource this decision to Alexa now we often point to the next generation and we do this I think it's a very terrible thing we point to them and we go oh those millennials or those gen z's they're so different from us But she's doing exactly what I do every single day, every time I check Twitter for news. She's outsourcing her trust to an algorithm. Now what Gracie didn't realize is that in the version of Alexa we have, she doesn't just hear you, she sees you. The reason why she sees you is because she has a camera. And what Gracie also didn't realize is because Amazon are gonna make a big plan to fashion like they've done in other categories, is that they've introduced this very helpful style check algorithm. So, Gracie could stand in front of Alexa, and it would give her a rating on, I don't know what that outfit is, but the furry hat outfit and the giraffe purse, and then it would give her a rating on her tiara outfit, but it would also make very helpful recommendations that maybe she needed a new pair of trainers, and would she like them shipped to her home or the school within the next hour? Now, why is this so worrying to me as a parent, <laughs> apart from my wallet, right? Like, my son actually joked me the other day, like, he'd been ordering these Udo cards. I don't even want them on eBay. And um, he just checked out on PayPal. And I said, how did you get them to my phone? And he's like, Mom, you're so dumb. You just keep changing the combinations of our birthdays. Like, it's so easy to get in, right? So, but... <laughs> the reason why this is so worrying is going back to the traits of trustworthiness is technology has taken this really interesting shift without us even realizing it that I grew up in a world as I'm sure you did where technology did things for us. Gracie and Jack and now us are growing up in a world where we've crossed this line from technology doing things to technology deciding things. Now when technology is doing things you only need to assess like this slide clicker, is it competent and reliable? When technology is making decisions, you have to start to understand its integrity, its intentions, its benevolence. How on earth do I teach the intentions of Amazon to a three and a half year old? So this is a real challenge that we face, is how do we start to trust the intentions of machines? Just to wrap, One of the things, though, that we tend to do, and we all do it as users, as citizens, as consumers, is we outsource this responsibility, that we talk about technology like it's something above us, that it controls us, that we blame what's happening, say, in elections, and misinformation, we blame it on the platforms. And a lot of the issues actually lie with us, Because one of the things that we do in our lives, one of the reasons why many of us even have Alexa in the bedroom. You know, I have a friend, she's very tech savvy. She has Alexa in the bedroom because she likes to know the weather first thing that she wakes up. Is we let convenience trump trust in so many areas of our lives. I did this just the other day. An Uber pulled up. I really didn't want to get in that car. I looked at the thing, it said 4.7, I was really late, I jumped in the car. I let convenience trump trust. And so one of the things I think we need to do, and this is actually an empowering way of thinking about fixing problems, is to slow down. We are living in an age of trust on speed. And efficiency and speed are the enemy of trust. Trust actually needs some friction it needs for us to find the right information, to ask the right questions, to slow down and to say, is this person, is this thing, is this product, is this piece of information, is it worthy of our trust? Trust cannot be automated by technology. It can't be fixed by compliance and regulation. Trust. Lies with us. We make the decisions as to who we give our trust to, and every time we think about this, I think we are taking control and trying to preserve what really is a fragile and precious asset: trust. Thank you very much. <laughs> my heart <hand>, breath. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We've got some time for some questions. So, this gentleman here. I, I'm, I'm uh, quite surprised uh, when you talked about uh, uh, trust as uh, transparency uh, is the enemy of trust.
0: No, no, I no, have no. a feeling, let, not-
1: let me finish my p- point. If I say two plus two is four, trust me, it's not necessary. Am I right? How much trust do we really need to get through life? No, so Okay, so you're partly right, and then I'm gonna contest something you said. So two plus two equals four. There's no risk, there's no trust required. This is really important. Not all things in our life require trust. When there's any kind of uncertainty, any risk or vulnerability, that's where we need trust. But there's very few absolute truths. So trust is often required in transactions and relationships and actions, right? I didn't say transparency is the enemy of trust. I said efficiency is the enemy of trust. What I was saying is that we often say more transparency equals more trust. That these two things are like brother and sister. And that's not the case. If you need for things to be really transparent, you're actually in a low trust state. This gentleman here, right in the middle. Hi, I'm Sergio from Mexico City. So we got a bit of a corruption problem down there. (laughs) And this whole, this same point about trust and transparency to me is uh, is fundamental because it seems that the discourse, as we move towards open government, open uh, data, all these ideas are revolving around transparency, but not around trust. Mm. So, for example, I mean, I'm working on the earthquake, uh, trying to open up the earthquake budgets, the relief budgets Mm. from the earthquakes from last year. And the government is always like, no, 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 we're being completely transparent. Here are all the receipts, all the the notes and everything. But you can't really trust that that they're making the right decisions about that. So what would you, like, what 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 were your thoughts in terms of how transparency and trustworthiness relate to in, like, public office and administration of... of It's it's a great example, and I think it's where so many open, particularly government-driven initiatives, are are running into trouble because it comes to expectations, right? So they think they kind of raise the expectations um, in terms of what you will have access to, what you have the right to know. And I do think it comes down to the intentions because the intentions government has is often not aligned with the intentions of citizens. So even getting really clear on that, like, why are we doing this? Are we doing this because we have a corruption problem and it's kind of like tokenism? Or are we doing this because we genuinely want people to know? And if you genuinely want people to know, you have to be prepared to open up everything. And it's when transparency kind of has a cap, right? So we'll share this, but then there's certain things that we have to keep hidden that again, we run into trouble. So I think asking these questions around intentions up front, what are our intentions of doing this, and making sure they're aligned with the intentions of citizens is really, really important. And then also being really honest up front if there are limits around this level of disclosure. Um, there's a really good example actually, the Bank of England, there's an interesting economist there called Andy Hordain, and he was set this task of making the Bank of England more transparent. And he said, like, if I make that promise, I can't uphold that promise. But if also I tell people what's going on, it's going to create fear and panic in a way that isn't good for trust. And he's been, the way he's dealt with that is he's actually been very open and honest around the things he can be transparent around. And then the reasons behind why certain things in society, there is a reason why we need to keep them confidential and private, that it can be good for trust. I think we've got time for one more question, and then I will answer more outside, so this gentleman here with the glasses and the hat. Thank you. My name's Andrew from uh, Boise, Idaho, and my question's about skepticism and trust. Um, I'm wondering first, is the definition of skepticism just a lower-than-average willingness to make trust leaps? Is it possible to be trusting and skeptical? How do we balance these two thought patterns, and what are the potential pitfalls or excesses? And then how should skepticism function in relation to those three types of trust? Or, and take maybe one of those, whatever feels most appealing. <laughs> That's a huge question. Um, it's a really, really interesting question. So, um, first of all, skepticism isn't a bad thing, right? Like, and skepticism and risk aren't the same thing, right? So, sometimes people can be skeptical, but they can still be risk takers, they can have a high risk propensity. I actually argue um, skepticism is healthy for trust if it comes from a constructive place of this idea of this trust pause, right? So I'm skeptical because I don't have enough information to make a good decision. I think skepticism is a weird thing that's got a negative connotation, but it's actually a good virtue to have people that are saying, I need to work a little bit harder because I really need to understand how this person or this company or this product is going to perform against those four traits. So, um, yes, so skepticism risks, but skepticism is, is healthy to a certain level when it comes to trust. Too much skepticism, though, is when you get to a point where you completely lose faith or confidence in a system. And that's a very precarious place. Because if you think about trust on a spectrum... What happens is you can have a trust breach. That can lead to a healthy level of skepticism and questioning. Then faith in the system can start to be eroded. So we saw this with the financial crisis, right? You're still kind of okay as a society when you're in that place. When that institution enters the third state, was it that it loses legitimacy to play the role it was set up for? That's really dangerous. And that's what we're seeing around things like the media, things like government agencies, that they're starting to lose legitimacy to play the role and the reason why they were set up in society. So skepticism isn't isn't a bad thing. Thank you very much for having me, and I'll be outside.
0: Rachel Botsman is an expert on technology and trust. Her book, Who Can You Trust? How Technology Brought Us Together and Why It Might Drive Us Apart was published in 2017. She spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 27, 2018. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.